0: Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work.
1: I was looking for that Zen moment that did knock your socks off, like the Rembrandt self-portrait moment. So powerful, the feeling you get from it.
0: In this episode, I speak with architect Frank Gehry in the second of several conversations we recorded together. In my last conversation with Frank Gehry, we spoke about his earliest years in Los Angeles, beginning in 1947 from his early education at USC to his experience at a large and established L.A. architectural firm, Gruen Associates, to his time doing design work with the U.S. Army. Over the years, he started a family and established a close network of artists and architecture colleagues. In 1964, Frank designed a residence and studio for graphic artist Lou Danziger. The Danziger Studio, as it came to be known, is often considered his first original design and marks his break from traditional architecture.
1: Who am I to talk?
0: We picked up our conversation over lunch in his office, where we talked about the next period in Frank's career, including the design of his 1978 house, the so-called Gary House, the project that brought him widespread notice and some not altogether positive attention from his neighbors in Santa Monica. All right, so in 1969, five years after the Danzinger Studio Project, you published a commentary in Designer's West magazine. It was characteristically blunt, and it opened with the following statement. Architects mostly practice in fear of clients, and thereby compromise the quality of their service. And then you went on to say, our architectural vocabulary is better than our clients. Our visual intellect is more highly evolved. We are the experts, and that is why we are hired. I want to provide services at my highest possible level, and to do so, I have to deal with the real issues. I have to question every facet of the client's problem to be solved and finally assume responsibility for my solutions. And then you gave your views about transportation and housing and the values of the architectural profession. It may not have been a manifesto, but it was a bold pronouncement for an architect with only a few independent projects to show for himself. Some of those things I talked about became true. (laughs) <laughs> sure like do.
1: the car, um, I think in there I said uh, you, there would be pools of cars, and you'd just go to the pool and get in the car. Like the bicycles now are. The other thing I talked about in there was the power pack, because it was right at that time we were working with Irwin and Rauschenberg at LACMA with uh, Garrett Air Research on Skylab. It was arts and technology. Technology, right? With Maurice Tuckman. With Maurice, right? So. It occurred to me that the biggest problem in building, uh, you know, I was still at the level of single houses or apartments built out of wood frame. And you built a house, you built a building, and then the wood frame's all up, and then in comes the plumber and cuts holes in it, and then in comes the electrician and drills holes in it and puts some metal tape holding the thing together. And somehow it seemed like a waste of human energy to be building something and then cut it all up and then having to hold it together with tape and stuff. And it occurred to me that if we could separate the shelter part of the building as a unique self-sustaining piece that you don't tear apart, and that it created the opportunity for it to be almost anything, it could have been plastic, it could be wood, it could be chop suey, it could be anything. Uh, and with a more aesthetic freedom, and then you have a power pack, which is separate, which isn't made by the contractor, which you buy from Hewlett Packard or, at that time, or somebody who created this power pack. It stored the power, had the lighting. You could connect with fiber optics. At the time, that was being thought, talked about. Uh, that you could used the sanitation systems that were being developed for space travel in the Skylab for toilets and reclamation of water and all that. So I thought that all of that could be taken out of the hands of the carpenter contractor type and built by NASA or somebody, (laughs) and that you could buy that separately. And that piece could change every five years you'd buy a new one as the technology got better and better and better and those things would get smaller and smaller and smaller and become more micro that uh, you would have a lot more flexibility in building your dream house your spaces aesthetically and um, so that was the idea and at that time i tried to figure out what a power pack would be and it, I worked it out. It would be the size of a one of those containers from the container ship wow. at that time. Wow. So if you bought one of those, you put all the stuff in it, and that could be s- set on the lot uh, beside this new frame, this wonderful thing. You would have everything you needed. With time, that would get to be half of that and then right. a quarter of that. Well, right now, it could be, you know, 10% of that. Right, right. So... That seemed like the right way to go with, and, and so now that we're working with JPL, we're starting to look with them at some of those kind of ideas. But What was the reaction at the time? Nobody. Uh, Craig Elwood called me when he read it, and he said, what the hell are you talking about? I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you prototype it? No. It was impossible? Though? No, we just... And it's it was in that period that the cardboard furniture then became part of it, that it was throwaway, that it was... I still think it makes sense, you know, because we get caught by all the mechanical stuff. You get stuck with it at a certain time in history, and it's embedded into this shelter, and it's pretty hard to retrofit.
0: Yeah. But what gave you at that time the courage... To, to make such a pronouncement? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you hadn't many projects to, to date to show for yourself, independent projects, at least of all any that was experimental like that, or any that was, as it were, condemning of the client and promoting of the position of the architect as a kind of independent voice in the process of building. I wasn't building. trying
1: to condemn the client, actually. I was saying to be a true partner to the client, you had to bring to the table the expertise and the experience and the all of that, that made your value, made yourself valuable to the client. I presumed it was a value.
0: <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> I found out later not many clients cared about that.
0: It was about this time that you got the commission studio for Ron Davis, artist friend, on a former ha- ranch house in Malibu. The house, as I look at it anyway, is a smart and seemingly simple, but in fact a dramatic, um, largely open, loft-like space that provided Ron Davis with rooms for studio, art storage, and living quarters. The building, for those who haven't seen it, is made of corrugated steel, and it sits on a high hill above the Pacific Ocean. And it looks as if it's slicing through the landscape like a knife. How important was that commission for you at that time? Was that, and was that part of your growing confidence?
1: Well, I knew Ron Davis as part of the art scene. He was an outsider to most of it. He was kind of a lone ranger off in a corner. But he did reach out to me a few times. And as I got to know him, I figured out that he played with perspective, but he didn't know how to build it in 3D. (laughs) That he could do these beautiful drawings with vanishing points and all that. But to build the object with that, he didn't get it. And he was trying to make three-dimensional objects. I don't know if you remember, some of those plastic early things had lips on them, had, had side. And they were trying to be perspective, but he didn't know how to do it. It was a strange blind spot. I couldn't figure it out. Just what was going on? And so when he asked me to do the house, I made a maquette of the land, and I had a room in, in the office at the time. I put the maquette in the room, and then I took strings and pins, and we made these this string diagram over the site and I was training him how to make a three-dimensional object. <laughs> and it was interesting. And I, I mean, I was consciously training him how to make it. And it was that that led to the design. So the site has a crook in it as it goes toward the ocean. It comes down the hill and then it bends toward the ocean. And when we start playing with these string lines, we found that that was the sweet spot where you could connect this perspective and be all on his land. I forget uh, what we were trying. I mean, I'm a little bit fuzzy on how it was. But I remember it was the sweet spot, and we, we loved that, and that's why we put the house there, and that's how we did it. And we designed a second house up the hill, again, with the strings, but that never got built. When the house was built, and our friend Philip Johnson came to visit it one day, he listened to my story and he said, well, the vanish- where are the vanishing points? And I said, well, they were in outer space. And he said, well, how did you? <laughs> <laughs> how did you know? He was trying to find the flaw in my stuff. But
0: What about the corrugated steel?
1: The corrugated steel was it was cheap, um, industrial buildings. Ron wanted to build a studio. The artists were working in industrial buildings. I think that was kind of a no-brainer. Um, but it
0: wasn't just cheap. It, you must have liked the effect of the surface, the, right, the rippled yeah, surface on it. We did. It gives one the impression, looking at the geometry of the, of, the, of the house, the Ron Davis house, that it takes the principles or the precedent of mid-century modernism and makes it tougher, stronger, more forceful, with a kind of a greater abstraction enforced by this industrial material. Were you consciously, as it were, critiquing the elegance of mid-century modernism? Yeah. So I was
1: dealing with my socialist tendencies, my of the people, my Bernie, what's his name? Sanders, Sanders. (laughs) period. And um, making everything cheap and industrial and saying it could be humane and beautiful. It didn't have to be marble and fancy. And that the fussy detailing at that time of the architects that were practicing, like I am pay at the time was... And and a lot of people, I, I forget, Breuer, yeah, everybody. There was a lot of God was in the details talk. And <laughs> I found that if you went for the bigger picture, if you went for the broader brushstrokes, the bigger elements, you would still have, the details wouldn't be fussy. Um, they would be matter of fact, but they would be stronger. In the, in the And I did that in my own house too, the early house. And Bilbao does that. Bilbao's a really cheap building, three hundred bucks a square foot. It's only because I didn't do fussy details. I just went with the texture of the technology and used it. You don't miss I don't miss the fussy detail, you know. At the same time as I'm doing Bilbao, I did the thing in building in Berlin with the fussy details. So I proved I could do the fussy details <laughs> if I had to.
0: Well let's go back to the Ron Davis house because that's yeah. the that's a big step from Danziger. You know, that's a kind of a bold step, both in the design and in the use of materials. And about the same time, you were making furniture, as we already mentioned, with the corrugated cardboard. And you first were making them with Bob Irwin, which seems a kind of an unexpected partnership in this enterprise. But it was the creative businessman of Richard Solomon who saw the work, as mm-hmm. I recall, and convinced you to go commercial with it under the name of something that sounded great, Easy Edges. And in 1972, in fact, you applied for and received a patent for the construction process. And that all seemed very promising, like you were going in a certain direction. But you pulled out of it, out of the deal with both Irwin and Solomon. And they were upset over the, all this. Matter. Money oh, sure. What made you pull out of that deal? I
1: had a very overprotective lawyer that was doing the thing for me. And I didn't realize it. Maybe you've had that happen in your life where somebody you love dearly, overprotects you to your disadvantage? No. You haven't
0: had that. <laughs> Maybe my parents.
1: <laughs> and the reason he could get me into it was that the furniture stuff generated so much publicity. There was a couple of weeks that every newspaper in the United States had a picture of me with one of those chairs. And it freaked me out. Going through Bloomingdale's and having people oh and on oh and all that freaked me out, because I wasn't secure enough as an architect. And I thought, God, I don't want to be this, I don't want to get sidetracked here into something. I'm sure it'll make money. I'm sure I'll get rich on it. I'm not ready for that. And the lawyer was pushing at me on the other side to say, uh, why are you sharing it with Irwin and Brogan, that's your idea, it's your patent, blah, blah, blah. The lawyers of Mr. Solomon were trying to cut a tough deal. So they wanted to be able to use my name as part of the deal. And he was trying to protect me from that. And since I was insecure about that topic, it was easy to convince me. So I kept trying to talk to them. Rogan, who works for a lot of artists, the rap on him over the years always from others is that he thinks he's the artist at the end. He forgets
0: well, your biographer Paul Goldberger described your pulling out of this deal as another indication of your tendency when even against your best financial interests, you turn away from such opportunities, opportunities over which you don't have full control that you wanted full control and. In the last interview, we talked about a number of times when you're not taking the job with Gruen, for example. It was a moment, again, where you had the courage to go independent, yeah. even though it was against your best interests.
1: Well, it seemed against my best turned <laughs> out I was right,
0: probably. <laughs> yeah. So this decade later, you're designing chairs for Vitra, the European Furniture Company, for which you also designed the museum and headquarters. And was it the particular relationship with Vitra that was important, or was it just simply your identity as an architect? Well,
1: or- Rolf Fehlbaum, who owns Vitra, and at that time had just taken it over from his family, he had a PhD in philosophy from some s- fancy Swiss university, was working with the Oldenburgs on the tool gate, and somewhere in there, I don't know, I started getting letters from Rolf Fehlbaum about designing furniture, and i I put him in a little hold box, and I never looked at him again. And this went on for a year, I think. And he was working with the Oldenburgs, He knew they knew me. So f- finally he contrived that he would be at dinner at the Oldenburg's in New York when I was there. And I'm sitting across the, from this guy, and he said, You don't answer my letters. And I said, You know, I don't know who you are.
0: <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing personal. You simply didn't know who he yeah. was.
1: And um, I said, you know, designing a chair is the hardest thing possible to do. And uh, I wouldn't want to do it with somebody I didn't know. You know, I couldn't. I couldn't imagine that we would serendipitously be able to work together um, and have the same values about a chair. And I said, so I'm busy working with architecture. It's not my primary goal in life is to design a chair. Although I, I, it's an exciting thing for me. I, I like the idea of it. Uh, I just haven't found the right venue or time or place. And he said, well, I'm the right place. And so I said, well, show me. <laughs> so I went to Switzerland with the boys and, when they were little. And um, we went to the factory, and they were placing the tool gate And I helped him locate it, and I got to know Rolf a little, spent some time with him, and um, liked him. Um, I agreed, okay, let's talk about it. At subsequent time, I'm not sure about this sequence of events, but subsequently I met in his factory with him and Herr Herr Breuning, or something like that. And Herr Breuning, I'm not saying the right name, but would look at any any sketch I made and, can't, can't do that, can't do that. Nothing you could do.
0: These were sketches made on the spot at Vitra?
1: Probably. As a
0: kind of example of what you were thinking about. Yeah.
1: There was never anything we could do. It was always impossible.
0: And this guy didn't know he was up against a Talmudic scholar like yourself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so we would have these frustrating meetings and I got to know Rolf and finally he said, well maybe should just do the building. So then I did the building. And um, we kept trying to do furniture, but it never worked. Everything always was in the way, never. we. I always laughed with him. I would do it. If we had a meeting now, we'd say the
0: same thing. So he went other directions. Well, let's get back to L.A. In the late 70s, you designed the print publishing studio for Gemini GEL run by your friends Stanley Grinstein and Sidney Felsen. It was another artist project. It's where... At their place where Ed Ruscha, Ellsworth Kelly, Jasper Johns, David Hockney, Richard Serra, and so many other artists made artist prints. But stylistically, in terms of shapes and volumes and the materials, it was radically different than the Danzinger and Davis uh, studios that were a decade earlier. It was plywood. It was plywood, and it was breaking out of forms. It was constructed. It was this idea of uh, an assemblage of different shapes and sizes.
1: But it was forced perspective, so it came out of the Ron Davis house. It was... Because I was playing with perspective with Ron, too. And I don't know what the date is uh, with Ron Davis. About the
0: s- early 70s, about six years earlier. I Ron think.
1: Davis was 72.
0: Or 72, yeah. And so this is in the later 70s. Was this in any way, was the the Gemini GEL a breakthrough project, or did you see it just coming naturally out of the Ron just Davis studio? Just
1: came naturally. Because
0: yeah. Yeah. it looks radically different. It yeah. looks bolder. It looks more, the materials are, you know, coarser yeah. Or or more... More vulnerable, even. Yeah.
1: And they are. And they've had trouble with it. They've had to replace (laughs) the plywood a few times. Um, But the one piece looks like the Danziger... The entrance, yeah, right on the, on the street, right, right. And then yeah. I took off from there.
0: Yeah, I mean the the, the fact that you refer to it as one piece of it uh, brings to mind um, what one museum critic called at this juncture in your work uh, comp- composition by assemblage. And I know that you but you were looking at Robert Rauschenberg and assemblages, you were looking at Jasper Johns and various. So it, was this consciously derived from artistic predecessors or principles?
1: Probably,
0: but I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember. I mean, I was looking at a lot of stuff. So about the same time, early 70s, you're with Ernest Fleischman, then executive director of the L.A. Philharmonic, and he hired you to work with an acoustician to improve the sound of the Hollywood Bowl, which, for those who don't know it, is the Art Deco's outdoor summer home for the orchestra. And you came up with a group of cardboard sonotubes. What was that conversation like with
1: Fleischman? <laughs> do you want the whole
0: story? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs>
1: Well, I didn't know Ernest Fleischman. He would just arrived from London. He was a harumph kind of guy. He was <coughs> rough German, <coughs> rough. Sometimes he could be rough, shot over people. Lovable and great friend in the end to me and to Essepeka and to even to Dudamel and to a lot of people before that, Simon Rattle, etc. He invited me to dinner at his house. And I'd just done the Meriwether Post Pavilion in Maryland. And it got a rave review by the music critic of the New York Times. It's called it the best sounding outdoor hall something. So he invites me to dinner. And he starts talking about the Hollywood Bowl. And they're trying to fix it. And it's, now this was September and the bowl opens in May. So he said, uh, we've got to get on with it. It doesn't work. The people on stage can't hear each other. I said, well, you know why? It's, the shell focuses the sound. There's a f- So, of course, they can't hear each other. And so I don't think you can do much to it. You can neutralize the focusing effect. And there's a lot of ways to do that. I don't know how I would go about it or... But there's a hundred ways to do that. And the budget was tight and the time was timeline. And he said, fine, can you start right away? And I said, sure, I'd love to do it. It's a great opportunity, thank you. By the way, how am I going to get paid? Shouldn't we talk about that? And he looks at me and harumphs a little bit. He says, this is your big chance for the big time. (laughs) You're not going to get paid. This is your opportunity to become well known for something, I looked at him, and I said, "That that's not going to work." <laughs> I said, "You know, Ernest Beckett has done the Music Center, and they have a big firm. And Pereira has worked on museums, and they've got a big firm. And this is nothing for them to do as a freebie for you. And if I were you, I said I'd pick Pereira if I were you, but." thank you for the opportunity, and I left. And he was really pissed. (laughs) But I, you know, that fits my M.O., right? Right. (laughs) And, man, I wanted him to do it. So that was September. I was disappointed. Went on about my life. Toward the end of November, I get a call from him. All right, you win, he said. I've talked to prayer, and I've talked to Beckett, I don't think they can do what I want. They may be free, but they can't do what I want. I need you. He said, I'll pay you. <laughs> I said, okay. So we started, but it was—it still had to be done by May. Now, we'd lost some time. That means construction had to be done by May. So I got Chris Jaffe, who was an acoustician who worked with me on the one in Maryland, and he and I started talking about how to do this thing. I was using sauna tube on a building. Sonotube tube is where you pour concrete in it right. and you strip it, right. throw away the cardboard. So I, I knew how strong they were. I'd had experience with the, the material, and I knew it could span.
0: Because you worked with it both vertically and horizontally. Yeah,
1: so I started talking to Chris Jaffe about that. And we did some experiments with it and found that it could work. And we even found that if we capped the ends of it, the volume got a base response, which was a glorious thing to find out. Uh, So now we were going to use the tubes to neutralize the focusing effect of the rainbow, which it could do. And we were going to get this extra little pump with the bass response, which But just is, to go
0: back to the rounded form of the tube, so rather than bouncing directly off the sound, the sound would actually slide off the tube somehow and mix with other sound coming off...
1: This is the rainbow effect.
0: Right. And the rainbow effect, for the listeners, ought to be clear that this is the actual structure of the Hollywood Bowl. This Art right. Deco structure that... So the sound comes
1: up and bounces...
0: To the center of the stage. But somebody
1: here and here can't hear... If this is a violin and this is a bass fiddle, they can't hear each other.
0: He, they're left and right at the center, so you can't hear sound going across no. the stage. In fact, stage. if
1: you got within five feet of each other on stage, you couldn't hear each other talking. It, this was so powerful, a focusing effect. So what we needed was to neutralize that, just cut across it. If you put a floor across it, that would have done it, because then the sound is bouncing in many directions. It's simple.
0: So then we just kept piling the tubes up. But the fact that the tubes are curved, does that make any difference? I mean, if it were just a floor and it would just flat? Yeah,
1: probably a nuance that you could measure. I don't know.
0: All right.
1: In an interior hall, it would help to have the curve. So I don't know outside whether, because it just reflects out into the ether. Inside, it reflects in. You're in the box, and it reflects all over. Um, And so then we made the verticals like that. And then there was a young artist gal I was hanging out with that made big vertical soldiers.
0: (laughs) Big vertical elements left and right of the stage itself, outside the stage or beyond the stage. That looked
1: like soldiers. And they were high, and we, we had them marching up the side of the hill. We used the whole aesthetic of the tubes as a decor and as a functional thing. And it worked. And the thing I didn't tell you, my fee going in was $10,000. That was, that was what we were arguing about, $10,000. <laughs> Before they hired me, I had to go to the board meeting. And the builder on the board, Zuckerman, I think his name is, Said, Mr. Gary, I have a question. Because the tubes cost ten thousand dollars. The installation cost ten thousand dollars and my fee was ten thousand, which is cheap, right? Yeah. And this character says to me, Isn't it unusual for an architect to be paid the same amount as the construction cost? <laughs> you know. I wasn't fast with the finger at that time, but and he was a nice man, I found out later. He he meant well, but so it was really cheap. We got it done, and it worked. And that was the first year. By then, I was getting to be very friendly with Ernest, and he would invite me to all the concerts, and, which I loved. And I would sit in his box, and he had a telephone in the box. And here's the bowl <laughs> going up. Going up the hill. And his box is here.
0: Uh-huh. In the second tier, as it were.
1: Yeah, and his, he had a telephone line to the sound guys that were here. And I would sit there during the concert, and he would get angry about something, and he'd call these guys. you got to push them, the sound and... Blah, 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 blah. And then you'd hear the sound system changing. And then Olive Barrent, who was the board chairwoman, when she heard all this going on, she walked all the way back to here. To the very back of the audience. And it wasn't balanced. And so she'd come here and tell Ernest... Nobody can hear anything back here. So, Ernest would call these guys. They'd change the thing again. It was Keystone Cops. And Olive was in it and Ernest was in it. And I've witnessed that for several years. It was hilarious. And they never got it right. You could never get it right. And I remember once there was a guy from England from London, DECA or something like that, a sound engineer that they brought over for one summer. And he was a pothead. And so Ernest thought this guy really knew how to do it because he was the engineer that worked for Ernest's best friend in the recording business in London. So he had a lot of creds. And so when, when this thing was going on, I walked back here and sat in here for half hour and he was smoking dope <laughs> and Ernest was calling him and he was pushing the dial.
0: And I said, "What are you doing?" He said, "I don't know." <laughs> well, let's let's get back to your house. So in 1967, as you were working on the studio Davis studio, you struck up a relationship with a young, beautiful and confident Panamanian woman named Berta Aguilera. Bertha was interested in an opening you had as an office manager in your small firm. And after some initial confusion, you offered her the job, and she took it. And eight years later, the two of you were married, and a year later, you had a son, Alejandro. There was now a practical reason to look for a new place to live. And it was Berta, because you were busy, you didn't care. Berta went out to look. And uh, you were busy with, still with the Rouse Company at that time, the projects, right? Yeah, probably. And they had you working on the Santa Monica Place. Maybe. Big, big commercial place.
1: Yeah.
0: Project. And uh, and you, it was important for your career because you used on that parking garage chain link fencing. Right. With right. great two-story high letters that pronounced Santa Monica Place. Right. Kind of right. an Ed Ruscha look to it in a certain way. Yeah. Right. So that was going on. But there were compromises on the Rouse Project, the Santa Monica Place Project, the commercial project. Berta was looking for a house. She finds a Dutch colonial house painted pink. And she said when she went through it the first time, she said, Frank can do things to this house. So you bought this house for $160,000 in Santa Monica. Exactly that. It was a lot of money at the time. I figured it out. It's $650,000 today's dollars. Really? And you had to put $40,000 down in the house. And you borrowed it from Fred Wiseman. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> the whole money. So you were in the house without putting any of your own money in, but you were in debt to Fred and to the bank for yeah. lots
1: of money. And then we put 50000 into the house before we moved in. We had to do stuff. Because I didn't move in until we did the house around the house. Right. My mother was alive at the time, and she took Berta, Berta was pregnant, and she took Berta aside and said, Honey, uh, you know who, and she meant my ex-wife, when she wanted something done, she would just go do it, and then he'll live with it. So my advice is get a realtor and get the house. <laughs> so that was my mother's doing, because Bertha isn't the type that would have done that on her own. I looked at the house, and it was—it didn't have a, a normal kitchen. There was stuff about it, and I. So we designed the house around the house which I'd done once before in the house in Hollywood that's for sale now, by the way. The office was at a turning point. We were out of work, and there were six of us in the office, and we decided to pool our money, and we bought a house in Hollywood together, and we remodeled it and sold it, and that's how we got through the year. And it was the same. I built a new shell around the old house. And the space between in Hollywood turned out to be the vertical circulation. In Santa Monica, it was to build a a real kitchen. When I looked at it, I could build 14 feet on the uh, Washington Avenue side. There was left of setback. I could come out another 14 feet. In front, I could come out, I think, five or six feet. And then back, I could have built as much as I wanted. So I came to the max in the front, came to the max on the side, and then just enough to create a passage behind and made a kitchen and a dining space and then opened up a bedroom in the back, made it a little bit bigger uh, so that there were two bedrooms. Alejandro was the only one born at that time, so we only needed, and he was two years old, I think. And then upstairs, we took one, the bedroom upstairs. The little one made it a nursery and did some slight remodeling up there and opened it all up to the ceiling. I spent $50,000. That was it. And uh,
0: You called it, I think, sketching with wood.
1: Did I? <laughs> That's probably what it was. All I remember is there was a Museum of Modern Art event in L.A. I was out of town, And they decided they wanted to hold a dinner in my house. And Arthur Drexler was hosting it in my house. And Berta was allowing that to happen. And um, I got a call from Philip Johnson the following week and said, Arthur is howling with laughter. He said, he's just been to your house. He wanted to know if the footprint on the wood was um, on purpose.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We, this house must have been, I mean, if it attracted a crowd from the Museum of Modern Art in New York, if Philip Johnson were, called you about the house itself, you must have realized in designing the house and building the house that it was going to attract attention. I mean, after all, you, I couldn't, didn't. you couldn't complain about the client because you were now the client. Yeah, right. So this was going to be a kind of I physical manifesto. I, manifesto. I
1: was naive about the attention. I, honestly, I didn't. I wasn't expecting that. I was doing my bernie sanders cheap 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 how do i live in a house in santa monica in a nice middle class neighborhood where people had cars up on blocks in their front lawn (laughs) had chain link fences had corrugated metal garden walls and i thought that was great that's my thing i love it (laughs) those are your people those are my people and uh I didn't realize once you do it intentionally, they didn't like it, (laughs) and they were upset about it. The lady, two doors down, was a lawyer, and she called the mayor, who was a First Nation lady, who was uh, on the board of the Santa Monica Bank, Donna Swink. And she called Donna up and started yelling at her about this house. So Donna called me and said, can I come by? And this big lady, you know, like a real squaw from the Indian tribe, <laughs> comes by and standing in front of it, and she's belly laughing. She's having so much fun. She said, "I love it." What's she complaining about? She said, "This is great." <laughs> the other one that came to see it was Jim Sterling, who came. He was doing something, I probably with the Getty. The but, architect. Yeah. He and I became friends, and he wanted to see it. So we had dinner a dinner for him at the house. And I picked him up at the hotel and brought him over and stopped the car in front, and he got out and stood in front of it, and he couldn't stop laughing. He was just thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever seen in his life. And I think for many years after that, Jim put me in some kind of a wacko box that he had decided I must be.
0: Well, tell us about Matt DeVito, the CEO of the Rouse Company. He comes over to your house. You've, <laughs> well, I worked you're working with, with him on Santa Monica Place. I worked Place. with him
1: on, uh, a lot of, on the Rouse Company headquarters. We became friends when I was doing work for the Rouse Company back years. He was the house counsel, and uh, he lived through the cardboard furniture days with me and was a friend kind of um, – he was fascinated by – my creativity or whatever. And a nice guy, a lawyer, came to the opening of Santa Monica Place, which I had designed, and came to dinner to the house, the the first house on 22nd Street, the next night after the opening. And he said, "Um, do you like this house? I said, yeah. He said, then you can't possibly like that pointing towards Santa Monica Place. And I said, well... You know, Matt, it's been compromised a lot by a lot of, a lot of people, so it isn't the, the real dream that we started out to do. So he said, well, you got to just stop doing that. Because at that point, they were just hiring me to do another big project. And uh, I'd had meetings with his staff about it. And told him I didn't want to go down that road again. I said, if you really want me to do it, we've got to collaborate. And I'm a good listener and all that. You know, all the stuff you tell. And he said to me, "Why, why are you wasting your time? Why are you doing that? It's not going to turn out the way you want it. And I looked at him. I said, I guess you're right. I got it. Okay. That was on a Friday night. Monday, I went in. And we stopped all the Rouse work. We had about forty people working on Rouse project. And I said I uh, talked to Devito, and he agrees we should wrap it up. And um, so I can't afford to keep all you guys. So and so we started over again. We were down to three.
0: So once again, you turned away from something that would. For most people, seem to be in your best interest. Well, financially, to move yeah, forward another direction. Yeah, independent yeah. Direction. But it
1: wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been honest and right. And.
0: But because of that house attracting the attention that it did attract, Christophe Dimonil came and talked to you about building a house for her. Right. Is that right. And yeah. you had this idea. it Seemed like a reasonable idea, given what one thinks of when one looks at your house. That maybe Gordon matta Clark, the artist, uh, would work with you to demolish the interior of the carriage house. Yes. It's a kind of site specific art piece. Did you really think that she was going to? Well, go she for was that thing?
1: hanging out with Michael Heiser and uh, Maplethorpe and I forget. People like that were coming to dinner, and I was there, and these are all people I liked. And, you know, she knew everybody in the art world. Her mother had done, they had a great collection in they the museum in Houston, which is now the Menil Collection, right? Yeah before before Renzo. Yeah. She was kind of open and wacky and artsy. I th- think she was dating Tony Berlant when I met her. So Tony was was her Los boyfriend. Artist, yeah. yeah, for a while. And Tony would talk about her and bring her around. You know, she was brought into the club and I was part of the club. So and she was curious about stuff I mean like she would go to a concert at Carnegie Hall she talked talk to a music critic and find out when the best 20 minutes were and she would get a limo, arrive at that point have it all worked out with the doorman, she could come in she'd have a seat for that 20 minutes and she could leave and she did that with theater, with all kinds of stuff and I was part of some of that and it was really weird
0: did the project go very far did you get anything on, down on paper um,
1: yeah we we built a swimming pool and we did the kitchen stuff but it wasn't satisfactory she was always changing it nitpicking it doing something about it it was never satisfying and she'd always at the end i was doing the two buildings
0: this is out in the hamptons no, it was
1: on 69th Street.
0: Oh, so this was her house yeah, so, in, in the city.
1: Yeah, so you came into this big room, and there were these two structures. They were like two separate things. And her daughter had one, she had one. And, uh, I mean, there's some great drawings and plans of it. And it just never seemed to go anywhere. And one day I came in, and she told me she'd hired Terrell to do the skylight in this building. And I said, "I guess you don't need me anymore." And she said, "I don't."
0: <laughs> well, that's and a, I
1: got up and walked out, and it all happened in about three minutes. Paul Lubowicki, who's a young architect, Ben, who's a good friend, we used to work here, was with me, and we went out. We got into a cab. And I started crying. I, I just broke down. It was so powerful. Uh, Thing. I was really invested in it. and One thing that happened that is a curious thing, just before all that happened, she asked for the drawings for all the cardboard furniture, all the original drawings. She wanted to show them to the lady from France, the furniture designer. What's her name? Who's died. And I said, well, I can't send you all the... Ri-. She said, no, no, just... Send them to me, I'll send them back to you on Monday. So I did, and I've never seen them again <laughs> since. And there was some beautiful drawings. And according to her, they were. she doesn't remember any of that. So, I'm, <laughs> you know what I'm thinking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the blessing and the curse of working with artists and artist types, huh?
1: Well, where are the drawings? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. So you come back, and uh, you're working with Chuck Arnoldi and Laddie Dill, so your artist friends, on various kinds of projects, including uh, some studios, one of which was purchased by Dennis Hopper, who goes on to purchase a second and a third such studio, and you've downsized your office to a size that can allow you to concentrate on individual residence projects. And then you get some great commissions for houses, the Wask Residence, the Winton Guest House, the Suramai Peterson Residence, the Schnabel Residence. There's a kind of blossoming yeah of work residential work it maybe isn't what entirely what you want you want something maybe larger and more complicated maybe more public than a private residence but there is a there's a there's a there's a recognized uh Frank Gary talent that people are are investing in at that time right and then you get some big projects you get the master plan for Loyola campus you get the California Aerospace Museum and Theater the Edgemar development in Santa Monica uh, there's a, there's a, now it's more than the houses. Now it's getting right. out into bigger projects. Uh, how are you feeling at this time? Because now it's about 10 years into, the, or it's a 10-year period in which you're doing this work. It's a busy time for you on your projects that you want to take on.
1: Right. It was hard work. It was hard to manage it. I wasn't rich. I didn't have an, a bank account. And architectural fees, when you're at that stage of your life, are not livable. But I learned to make it work. I created some ground rules. I think I created the ground rules earlier, and I said that I would never um, borrow money. I just couldn't bring myself to do that. And I would never have people work for me for free. I could never do that. And that those would be the rules. So if we ran out of money, I would have to work Longer and harder, which is what I did most of the time. I had Greg Walsh became part of it, and so you know he helped me a lot he would he didn't care about the money either, so he worked hard with me as a partner in it so between the two of us we'd get things done for within the fees that we got yeah.
0: I mean this is the 70s. this is a decade in which you really identify or are identified as an important architect. Commissions are coming your way, but you're building a practice, you're learning how to do it, how to manage the affairs, and so forth. Uh, And then a big project comes along that you thought of as likely to be your project, and it's the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. You were involved with a number of the artists who were involved in the planning of the project. You were invited to meetings at Marsha Wiseman's house. You you had every expectation (laughs) to think that this is going to be your project. And then they give it to Isosaki, Arato Isosaki. It must have seemed like you were on a trajectory that was moving forward rapidly and upward rapidly, and then this disappointment hits.
1: Well, it wasn't exactly like that, because that suggests that I was devastated. And the thing you should know is I was never presumptuous about that I would have that project. I knew Max Pilevsky pretty well, and I knew he didn't like my work.
0: Was he chair of the board?
1: Yeah, and he and Eli, who didn't, at that point, I knew slightly, I had no relationship with him. And my only relationship was with Marcia and Fred, where I did all the front-end work for them. I studied the uh, Pan-Pacific site. I did a lot of free work for them when they were gearing up for this, of where they should put the. Museum, so it seemed like that was inevitable. Then there was a artist meeting that Marcia convened at Dwayne Valentine's studio on Market Street, and I wasn't invited. And I asked Marcia why I wasn't invited. She says, "Well, you're an architect. This is an artist meeting." I said, "Okay, I got it." So. At that meeting, and I had many squealers that called me up the next day and told me who said what about me. (laughs) And so it was Moses and Graham and Irwin, and they all said, well, we don't want Gary. He's trying to be an artist, and we want to design it. It's our turn. And they were going to design it. The strongest spokesman was probably Graham. Because I'd had a Graham knockout before. The sculptor. Sculptor. He kicked me out of a job before. And so I knew he didn't really want me on that. Even though we were really good friends. So I'm I'm talking about something that was... A strange kind of dance was going on. Because I was friends with all these people. And then it got reported to me the next day. And three people emerged from that as my friend uh peter alexander chuck Arnoldi, and laddie dill and i stayed friends with them all these years and they were loyal to me in this crisis and i've maintained that kind of loyalty and i've I've maintained that feeling of be on guard with the other people all these years even with ed even though i love him and and graham i loved him to the end and i went to the funeral i you know, I was supporting him. Yeah, it changed the, the climate for me with the art scene. I felt very comfortable after that, becoming friends with Chamberlain and Rauschenberg and all those people. New York-based artists. Yeah. I,
0: farther from home.
1: Farther from home. They didn't have that baggage. Uh, they treated me equal.
0: So they came to you though, as that when that project was you know being designed by Isosaki, maybe being constructed by Isosaki, with an idea for something they then called the temporary contemporary, now called the Geffen contemporary, yeah. which was a renovation of an industrial space, which you said, or at least it's reported that you said you thought of as a consolation prize. You asked them if it was a consolation. Well, prize.
1: yeah, Pontus Holton, Richard Koshalek called me to go to a restaurant. I went to a Japanese restaurant near my house on Wilshire and 23rd Street. And um, they sprung this thing on me. And I looked at them. I said, you know, I don't need a consolation prize. Don't do that. You know, stop it. I'm okay. (laughs) You don't have to do that. Oh, well, come on, Frank. We think you can do this and this is important and it could very well end up more important than the final building. Now why they thought maybe that could happen and they were hiring Isosaki, I don't know. maybe they had a premonition. Sam was pretty smart. And Sam was pushing the Isosaki thing because of his relationship San Francis. Yeah, San Francis because of his relationship to the uh, his wife who was Japanese at the time. So I think there was that hook for Sam. I don't know about Pontus. Pontus didn't know much about me. I I turned them down. I said I don't, I don't want to do this. You're all screwed up, you guys. Stop it. So they went on and on about it. Then they said, "Look, we really want you to do this. This is important to us. It's not. It's not a game." Blah blah blah. I remember saying to them, well, you got Coy Howard. He's on the, your committee, the artist. Because Coy was uh, going with Alexis Smith at the time, and he was an Irwin acolyte. And he and Irwin became close friends during that period. And he was the only architect invited to that meeting at... at. Uh, Marsha's house? No, at the... Um, oh, at the gallery. At the gallery. Yeah, the studio. Studio. Yeah. So I said, well, he's your architect, let him do it. No, no, he he can't do it. We won't, that's not going to happen. You got to do it. So I said, well, let me sleep on it. So I got, I went, to, went home. I was convinced I wasn't going to do it. I went to bed. The phone rings at 7.30 in the morning. It's Coy Howard. He says, Frank, were you offered the temporary contemporary? I said, "Why? What, what, what's it? Why do you want to know?" He said, "Well, that's my job. That's supposed to be my job." I said, "Really? Have you told him?" <laughs> <laughs> and I hung up. <laughs> <laughs> and I called Sam Francis, and said, "I got this call, and I'm telling. I told you, he's your guy. Do it. <laughs> Leave me alone. I don't want to get involved with all this bullshit." And Sam said, he ain't going to get it. You're the only one that's going to get it. So you better shut up and agree and get to work with us. And somehow the way he talked about it and having the Coy Howard phone call made me turn around and said, okay, Coy Howard. Because <laughs> Coy had been critical of my work. When I did the interview, the, they had a bogus interview. Uh, Max Pilevsky called me. For, for the new building for the new building and he said I need a favor this was before all this stuff with the he said "I we need to have a Los Angeles architect interviewed on the record we're going to give it to Isosaki, but we need we need a decoy or something and he said it would help us a lot if you would do it so I thought well I'm going to have fun with this so I agreed and I went and did it, and I predicted all the problems they would have with ESO. I said, he's not going to understand the developer, all that stuff, so he, you better get him a local partner. And I told him how to do everything. And Coy was on the jury that was doing the interviews, which was funny because he's not somebody I had huge respect for him and he's okay he's a graphic guy nice guy and I went to lunch after that Koi invited me to lunch after that interview in Westwood and I went to lunch with him and he said some very unflattering things about my work he said well your work is really going downhill and blah 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 so he was being uh, a little bit playing loosey goosey with, with me So, I think it's because of all that that when he called me, added insult injury, and I thought, screw you, asshole.
0: And the irony is, the temporary contemporary became a great success. Yeah. And people still think of it as the great space in Los Angeles for contemporary art. It has the kind of rigor that one needs for contemporary art and they've had fantastic exhibitions there whether the great big single artist exhibition like the Richard Serra exhibition or whether it's group exhibitions it is a a building that people hold fondly in Los Angeles as a venue for contemporary art. But it
1: shows you that preciousness in designing museums is not necessary I mean there's a lot of flexibility in designing museums.
0: So at about that time as that all gets resolved and contemporary is built and opened and, and mocha is built and opened so you have an exhibition of the walker of your work the walker art center in minneapolis 1986 um it, characteristically for you it wasn't only a show of models drawings and photographs of your work but uh, it was in, in effect one of your projects i mean you made a group of structures in it that actually shaped the experience of the exhibition itself the way people moved through the exhibition uh that must have been a big turning point for you Maybe a risk also, but a turning point.
1: Yeah, that was Mickey Friedman who curated that, who I kind of knew from the art scene, because I used to go to Minneapolis, but I didn't really know her personally. I mean, I'd met her, but I knew what she was doing and knew about the walker. So it was a big deal when she called and asked me to do it. It was very special, I can remember. I was very moved by it. And I went back and met with her, and she came out and met with me, and we had a lot of meetings. Martin was not involved, and I knew...
0: Her husband, who was the director yeah, of the who museum. who was the director of the museum. He didn't
1: seem to be involved, which seemed right to me, because he was... Uh, he's a tough guy. He was... Uh, he was very outspoken, and... Uh, and the few encounters I'd had with him before, he didn't seem to be that interested in architecture. He was more involved with the Oldenburgs and uh, people like that. She opened the door to making those structures. She asked me to do it.
0: Yeah, those that were part of the installation of the, the yeah, exhibition? It, yeah,
1: it was her idea to take the, the exhibit a little further. She had a good sense of stuff because... You could just looking at the models that were around at the time and the drawings and the photographs of buildings, there wasn't enough there to give anybody a, that hadn't been to one of the buildings a feeling. And she wanted somebody to be able to sense what it was like to be up against or near near it, I guess. And so it was obvious to play with the cardboard and to make that anechoic room, so to speak. I I actually think that little room was one of the best things I've ever done, that car mode room. It just flowed effortlessly <laughs> out of what I was doing. And then I'd already started talking about the fish and had made the one for the Italian fashion house for a show at the Pity Palace, the wooden fish. That's... Uh, 35 feet long, that's Shinichita made, that has fins and eyes and all kinds of kitsch parts to it, but that uh, when you stood beside it, it moved. You felt it it was moving. And there was an art director at the time and that came to the show. Was it was in um, Torino at the Castello de Rivoli. It was the first show in the reopening of the Castello de Rivoli. And I had a room with this fish in it. And Rudy Fuchs was standing beside from me. From and, Amsterdam. Yeah. I knew him as a very judgmental guy and because Kosha and Klaus had talked about him. But he was standing beside me. And he said, Did you see that? I said, What? He said, Can we have a coffee? And so we went downstairs. And he said, That moved. I said, Well, I'm searching for a sense of movement in architecture i've turned to the fish as as that because the fish is 300 million years before man and i thought that postmodernism was looking back to the greeks and they could look further back if they wanted to you know why stop at the greeks if you're going to go backwards let's roll it back and i got into that discussion with me he said well but you know, it really does work. And I said, I got it myself, yeah. I was standing there, and uh, I said, that's what I've been looking for, and I didn't know how to do it, but then accidentally we did it. And so now, I never saw the guy again after that. But But I was getting complimented by uh, one tough hombre in the art world, (laughs) right? Which is... All about the fish. ...was worth something. Anyway...
0: Because that was a big part of the walker exhibition. was So the walker the
1: exhibition, I cut the tail off, the head off. I was trying to see how much I could cut of the kitsch parts off and still have the movement. And so the piece that was made with lead copper for the walker was the kitschless fish. <laughs> and it still worked. So I was experimenting with that sense of movement that I was looking for. Yeah.
0: So that exhibition's a big thing. And then you get a call from Philip Johnson, and he's going to do an exhibition with seven new architects. must have been uh, new to you that you were a new architect, but nevertheless it was described as such, at MoMA. Um, and they would include, among others, Zaha Hadid, Rem Koolhaas, Peter Eisenman, and so forth. And the exhibition was called Deconstructivist Architecture. How did you feel being exhibited in an exhibition well, entitled Deconstructivist Architecture?
1: I told them that I thought that the word decon as applied to my work was onomatopoetic and it wasn't real and that I wasn't a philosopher and I hadn't talked to Derrida about it but I think they're abusing Derrida's term when they put me in it and some of the others they put in but anyway Philip was Philip and you did what he said and so you went in. I then met Derrida, and I asked him about it, and he said, "You're absolutely right." <laughs> so,
0: this was your first show in New York, I would guess, because it's only your second probably, exhibition. Probably, yeah. So that was an important moment. Yeah. Even though the Walker, which was the solo exhibition, was more important in those terms. Well, the the
1: MoMA did a show of this furniture on the ground floor, and they had a party and stuff. I think it was after the decon show. All right, must yeah. have been.
0: But sometimes shortly thereafter, you're with um, Ernest Fleischman again from the L.A. Philharmonic, and you uh, are in Europe. I mean, you might be in Denmark or somewhere in Northern Europe, and you get a phone call. You pick up the phone. And the person at the other end of the phone tells you you've just won the Pritzker Prize.
1: I was in Amsterdam. We'd been to a concert at the Concertgebouw. I'd already won the commission for Disney Hall. And we were going around looking at his favorite halls. And he wanted me to experience them the way he did. And so we went to Concert Cabal. We had a few drinks. I went back to the hotel, went to bed, fallen asleep, and the phone rings. And it's Bill Lacey from the Pritzker Prize. Now, Bill and I were friends because he was one of the first people that, when I did the first Magnet store, and he called me and came to see me. And he was the first guy from outside my little environment that said, You're doing something interesting. And so we've stayed friends. And so he called me, and I was a garagi, and he said, Frank, you've won the Pritzker Prize. And I knew he was ahead of the jury, you know, and all that. And I said, Stop it, Bill. Don't play games with me. I'm tired. Venturi hasn't won it yet. And I hung up. <laughs> <laughs> then he called back again. And he said, well, you did win it. and But don't tell anybody. So <laughs> now I'm awake. And I'm convinced I did win it. And so the first thing I did, I called Berta. <laughs> so I'm not supposed to tell anybody. I figured I could tell her. And I got all excited. And, of course, I never fell asleep that night. But... <laughs>
0: But that was 30 Thir- years into your career. Yeah. I mean, that was, uh, that was three decades of long, hard work. A what was it? 89, I think. Yeah, exactly. And then in your acceptance speech, when you received the prize, you said, I explored the processes of raw construction materials to try giving feeling and spirit to form. In trying to find the essence of my expression, I fantasized the artist standing before the white canvas, deciding what was the first move. I called it the moment of truth.
1: So I think I was trying to find, I mean, I realized it was about feeling. And I was trying to find the way to express it and the way to, the way to conceptualize how do, you, how do you do it. I didn't necessarily want to talk about it. I just wanted to make it a part of my gut that that's what I was doing, that I was looking for that Zen moment that did knock your socks off, like the Rembrandt self-portrait moment so powerful, the feeling you get from it. And I was looking for that. And I was talking about it at that time in the Pritzker because um, the day I I got the Pritzker Prize, we were at Todaiji in Japan. And I arrived for the event and it was just before lunch. It was like 11 in the morning and it was going to be a lunch after the event. And standing out in the front of Todaiji Temple were two microphones about 100 feet apart. And one of them had Kenzo Tangi doing an interview. and the one, of, one of them had Frank Gehry doing an interview. And we weren't talking to each other, and it was about the same price. And then we got inside, and we sat down. It was a long room as part of the temple. It was narrow. It was about this wide and was... Seats, it was like a church, and I was sitting next to Kenzo Tangi and uh, Jay Pritzker. And of course, the Pritzkers wouldn't pay for a simultaneous translation (laughs) when you know them. (laughs) So Kenzo's talking, and the translator's whispering in my ear. But I hear him Todaiji, 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 Todaiji. And the girl's telling me, he's saying, Tore, Jesus, the greatest this, the greatest that. And this has nothing to do with Frank Gehry. He ended it. And then he said, Pritzker Prize, Pritzker Prize, Pritzker Prize. I could hear him talking. And she's translating. And he finishes that diatribe. And this has nothing to do with Frank Gehry. And then they give me the microphone. It's my turn. (laughs) And I turned to him, Tongi, and I said, I guess I'm going to have to work harder. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How I managed to be that calm and collected about it, I don't know. But sometimes it works. And I then gave that little speech that I prepared and didn't prepare. I didn't prepare it, but on the flight over, Bill Lacey and, and Carter Brown were on the same plane with me. And they started... There's a whole process that the Pritzker guys started that of harassing the he laureate cried. the same day. And then Renzo and I were in the recent years were given the job to harass the the people. But so I'm on the plane and Carter says, Have you got your speech ready? I said, No. I said, I'm just have to say thank you, right? <laughs> <laughs> he says, No, <laughs> He said, this is an important speech, probably the most important speech of your life. And I said, well, you know, I'm not very good at writing speeches. I'll I'll do some kind of an outline. And then Lacey starts in on me about how important the speech is. By the time I got to Tokyo, (laughs) it was the the evening, and we had a little dinner the night before. And then I went back to the Ryokan, and by then... I was getting scared about yeah. this speech. So I got up at 6 in the morning and wrote <laughs> a speech. <laughs> and that's what came out. I don't uh, know how.
0: <laughs> well, it must have been a confirmation of all that you had, had wanted of your architecture practice, that it would be close to an artist's practice. It was um, a vindication of the sacrifices you'd made, the decisions you made. And you are on the verge, and we'll get to this in the next podcast, you're on the verge of the the building that would be the greatest triumph for you to date, the building that would transform your career, even, even perhaps your life, and that is the Guggenheim Museum of Bilbao. And I know that there are buildings before and buildings after, but we'll look at that next time. Okay. So thanks again. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening.